Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mom and Dad are Fighting is sponsored by Little Passports. Keep your kids busy after school with Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. Right now, Mom and Dad are Fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month with promo code MOMANDDAD40. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D-4-0. Learn more at LittlePassports.com slash MomAndDad. And by BullandBranch.com, the company that makes luxury bedding affordable. Get the nicest sheets you've ever owned for about half the price of what stores and boutiques are charging. Order right now and they'll give you $50 off a set of sheets plus free shipping. Go to BullandBranch.com, that's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, and use the promo code MOMANDDAD. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, November 5th, the Agony of Defeat edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate and the dad of Harper, who's eight, and Lyra, who's 10. I'm Allison Benedict, also an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry, who is seven, Sam, four, and Wally, two. Hi, Allison. Hey. On today's show, we will talk to Dr. David Hill of the American Academy of Pediatrics about the AAP's new advice on screen time for kids. Then we'll be joined by Mike Pesca of The Gist to discuss childhood sports heartbreak in the wake of the Mets World Series disaster. Plus, triumphs and fails, a DVD giveaway, a listener call about thank you notes, and more. But first, 
If you're a fan of the show, please tell a friend. Today, I want you to tell a friend on social media. Pause all your Facebook political battles and your sexy Snapchatting and let a parent you like know about our show. It helps us survive in the cutthroat world of podcasting where every day Mark Marin and Ira Glass are trying to take us down. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Also, if you have not yet bought your tickets for Slate's live Superfest on Broadway, what are you waiting for? On November 16th, podcasting stars from the Political Gab Fest, Culture Gab Fest, and Hang Up and Listen, plus Slate's very own Jamel Bowie, will be live on stage at Town Hall in New York City. And guess who's hosting this motley crew? Who? Who could it be? My assistant, Dan Coyce. Wow. Uh, yeah, Dan will be there. And maybe I will be there. I will not be on stage, but maybe I will be in the audience. You should be there, too. Go to Slate.com slash NYC to buy tickets and get more information. Also, there will be an exclusive, exclusive on my the page that I'm reading from is in ITALS, exclusive after party with the talent, Slate staff, and Panoply partners at an undisclosed location. Very, very secretive and exciting. There are only 50 tickets total for the party, which will include drinks and hors d'oeuvres. Uh, the venue will be within walking distance of the theater, but it will only be revealed to you two weeks prior to the event. So, again, go to Slate.com slash NYC to buy tickets for the show and after party. And as always, Slate Plus members get a big discount. I hope the after party is just on the sidewalk outside the theater. <laughs> right. I hope that's where it ends up that it is. All right, let's uh, move on to Triumphs and Fails. I will start today. Uh, my fail, it's a fail, is a long-term fail, one that uh, has lasted for years and is a problem that I simply do not know how to solve. It really came to a head last night. Uh, Lyra, my older daughter, is in many ways a wonderful child, as you know, Allison, having fielded a number of pitches from her in your office one time. Um, but she doesn't really care about propriety that much, and in some ways I love that, but in other ways... I get annoyed that we have a 10-year-old daughter who doesn't even care enough to use a fork at the dinner table. She is 10, and she just basically eats with her hands all the time, no matter what we do or what we say. So last night we had pasta. It was healthy and delicious and in an exciting and rare development. Both kids liked it. But Lyra simply could not be bothered to eat it with a fork. She just kept sort of absentmindedly picking it up with her hands and stuffing it in her mouth. And we would say, Lyra, please use your fork. And then she would use her fork for like one bite. And then we would continue our conversation. And then for the next bite, her hands would be in her pasta again. And this is like every meal for the last five years. And I don't like want to send her to a room every night without dinner because dinner is like the only happy time that we spend together. That's not like me yelling at her about other stuff, but I don't want to yell at her about her fork every night. Um, and and, you know, half of me is sort of ashamed at her terrible table manners, and half of me is impressed by how few fucks she evidently gives about table manners. Anyway, my um, olive oil-covered daughter is my fail this week. I wish that my husband listened to this goddamn podcast because we have the <laughs> same issue with Harry, and that's, it causes a lot of tension. I kind of, I mean, I care uh, but I keep saying to myself, oh, he's not really going to be, this isn't going to be an issue. Like, is he really going to be eating with his hands when he's 10? But apparently he will be. Uh, right. I yeah. need to hear from like some 20-year-old <laughs> right. parent who's like, well, he finally stopped. But John makes a big deal about it 
you know, almost every meal. It causes a lot of tension around dinner time, uh, around breakfast time, and around lunch time if we're all eating together. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I don't know. I don't think with Harry, I never th- thought about it as like he just doesn't care. I feel like maybe he just like isn't good at using a fork. Is it possible that it's about like some sort of motor skill situation? Yeah, I mean, it definitely could be. I do think that because Lyra hardly ever uses forks, she's not as good at using a fork as she could be. Yeah, though she has in circum in like formal occasions at nice fancy dinner, she has managed to use a fork enough to not humiliate us. So I guess that's good. Yeah. All right. How about you? I have a. It's like a. It's a. It's it's a mix. I'm it's trying. A it's a phalanx. Yes. Uh, I'm, I was attempting to triumph, and I'm failing at it, basically. So I'm learning this year that Harry has terrible, like really, really terrible organizational skills. I'm not sure if this is revealing itself to me only now because he's expected to be more organized in second grade than he was in first, or if it's because we're at a new school and so he's kind of still trying to figure out the routine and logistics there, or if it's because he's really young for his grade, so it's like a developmental issue, or if he's just always going to be terrible at keeping track of his shit. So far, he has lost two school library books. I think they've only gone to the library maybe five times, so he's it's not a great record. Uh, he loses, like, every tiny little Tupperware container I pack in his lunch, and I find his homework in one room, his blue folder that his homework's supposed to be in in another room, and his backpack in another room, basically every day. So my attempt at a triumph here has been to listen to all the people we've had on our podcast and try to guide him, but not actually do anything for him. So I won't, for instance, put his homework into his folder. But I will say, you know, Harry, where's your homework and where's your folder? And I hope he puts two and two together. The lost library books are on him. He has to pay for them out of his allowance. And if he doesn't have enough money to pay for them, then he'll have to, you know, sort of get docked allowance going forward. So I'm really trying to not contribute to his helplessness. However, it's not working at all. He's not getting it. He doesn't care. This is, oh, this is just like Lyra. He doesn't really seem to care. Is the he basically problem. sounds exactly like Lyra because yeah. Lyra is exactly like this too. I was at his school last week and grabbed his backpack. Like they told the parents to grab their backpacks before the Halloween parade in like the little back closet. And under his backpack were tiny, like were like 20 tiny Tupperware containers just lying <laughs> on the ground. So help me, people like Jessica Leahy. I don't know. What do I mean? Wah! It's going to cause a lot uh, I mean, of tension in our house. It's driving me crazy. Yeah, so we have the same problem with Lyra. So once again, he may not grow out of it by the time he's 10. Maybe yeah. later. I don't know. So are you um, on her constantly or do you let her forget her homework? We are on her constantly and she still forgets her homework. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like it doesn't help. You know, it's like Friday, the Friday before Halloween, she wanted to wear the sweatshirt that was her entire Halloween costume to school. And we were like, okay, but you got to bring it home because otherwise you don't have a Halloween costume. Right. And then Halloween morning, we're like, where's your costume? And she's like, I don't know. Yep. And yeah. it was It school. doesn't care. Like, where, <laughs> right. How many times have I, like, you know, bought you a new water bottle? Where's your right. water bottle? Oh, I left it on the bus. Here's that, the like, best. Them's the breaks, basically, right. is what he says. Here's the best recommendation I can give to you, Allison. The yes. only, like, low-level solution to this problem that I have found that is also available to you as a person who works at a magazine is every time a children's book comes into the Slate New York offices, steal it. And then four times a year, bring a huge bag full of brand new children's books to your school librarian so that they don't get angry at you about how many library books your child loses. I mean, okay, but I'm not worried about the librarian being mad at me. You should be. Librarians can ruin a kid's life, man. Harry's going to pay for those books. All All right. right. 
Uh, that is a real problem. I would also love to hear from people. Maybe we should just do a segment on organization because we both have identical children, apparently. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to a message from our first sponsor, Little Passports. Keep your kids busy after school with Little Passports, the award-winning subscription for kids. Pen pals Sam and Sophia will send your child a monthly package in the mail, each one highlighting a new global destination like Kenya or Spain or Egypt. Follow the journey on the wall-sized world map and enjoy learning through letters, souvenirs, stickers, activities, and more. Harper continues to love her Little Passport subscription. She loves it when they come in the mail. Uh, and Mom and Dad are Fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month today with promo code MOMANDDAD40, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D-40. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash momanddad. All right, let's move on to our first segment. Can I get on the computer? Why do I have to get off the computer? Can I have five more minutes? Can I watch a show? I didn't use all my screen time yet. It's not fair that she still has screen time. Why can't I visit this website? I need to use my computer for homework. Why isn't my school iPad charged? Does reading fan fiction count as screen time? It's still just reading. I recently performed a time audit of how I spend my time with my children, and it turns out that somehow I spend 125% of my time arguing with them about screens. Screens and my anxiety about screens have taken over my life, so we have called in Dr. David Hill, a pediatrician from Wilmington, North Carolina, and one of the authors of the American Academy of Pediatrics new paper on screen time for kids. Hi, Dr. Hill. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. So I think that many parents are familiar with some aspects of the AAP guidelines or the, the longstanding AAP guidelines of no screens before age two, right? We, we often know it in the context of feeling bad about how our kids are watching TV at age one. So what was the impetus for this new paper, which you guys just published? Right. So let's walk back to the original guidelines for a moment, because I think they're frequently characterized in ways that are not quite accurate. So... What we said in the initial guidelines was that we discourage screen time for children under age two. Not that, you know, it will be a horrible thing if the screen is on occasionally. So it was like a total ban. It was a let's think about this really hard. And we can go back further to the rationale behind the original guidelines because nothing about that rationale has changed. What we know about screen exposure in young kids is that it is strongly correlated with decreases in language development. Now, in language development. Now, these data come, obviously, from television. And the question that everybody has and that prompted us to convene as many experts in the field as we could get, and we had some really amazing people come visit with us in May of this year to, to get their opinions, was... We understand that this is not television anymore. In many cases, these screens are being used as television. In many cases, we're still talking about passive consumption of pre-recorded programming, and there's no reason to think that what we learned about television from a cathode ray tube is different because somehow this is a handheld LED-driven device. However, we know that there are mobile devices, there are interactive devices, and the question that we had was, what has changed with these devices? The answer is, mm, still nobody is quite sure yet. There are very, very few available peer-reviewed uh, data that have been published in reputable journals 
to tell us if anything has changed. The little that we do have suggests that children might be able to pick up some foreign language by interacting with a live person through a screen, as you might on Skype or FaceTime, for example. And that is really neat. The learning does not appear to be nearly as efficient as it is in person, but it also doesn't appear to be zero. So there's that. Does that tell us anything at all about apps that involve swiping and poking? And, you know, no, we really still have very little data about that. Uh, Where the research is not there, I think we have to say, you know, proceed with caution. And that is essentially what we have said. We have said, okay, you know what? We really don't know what happens when a six-month-old or a nine-month-old or an 18-month-old plays games on an iPad. Don't know. It could be great. It might not be. Uh, But we're really interested in finding out. It's interesting that you say proceed with caution because I think a lot of people interpreted this paper as freeing in many ways, as as loosening what people at least felt were restrictions, even if they were not intended as restrictions. I think that when people read that the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends something, they tend to take that as, oh, shit, I better do that. But it, I do feel like a lot of parents viewed this particular paper as – letting them off the hook a little bit and saying that, yeah, that it's not like the end of the world. And that it also stresses a lot of tools instead of just laying down limits, it stresses tools for ways that parents can think about and act on the kinds of screen engagement that their kids have. One thing that the paper stresses is co-engagement. What does that mean exactly? Right. So what do we know about young kids and learning? In fact, older kids and learning. The more that it is in person, the more it's face-to-face, the more effective it is. Kids are, are wired to learn from other human beings. Uh, so the question came up, you know, well, you guys say no screens under age two, which, as we said, is not exactly what we said. But what does it mean? Does it mean that my child, you know, can't uh, Skype his dad who's deployed in Afghanistan? Well, gosh, no, that's not what it means. We wanted to clarify that. If you're feeling bad about your child Skyping a distant relative, we want to let you off the hook. Please let your child Skype grandma or granddad or, you know, mom who's away on a business trip or dad who's deployed. My gosh, we don't want to stand in the way of that. Does it mean that we can't read Goodnight Moon on the screen instead of, you know, in a paper book? Heck No! Uh, as one of my, my colleagues and co-workers in this endeavor, uh, Dr. Dimitri Christakis, said uh, in a New York Times article, I love this, I'm going to get a bumper sticker, kids need laps, not apps. If the app is getting the child in your lap, fantastic. Where a screen is pulling people together and helping them share time and interact with each other, I think it's very hard for anybody to say that that's problematic. Uh, I have a house full of older children, and we have found some sort of family gaming apps, which brings sort of the, the board game environment, like Pictionary, up onto the TV screen, which means I, I got a house full of seven kids plus anybody who happens to be visiting. You know, we can get 10 kids around the TV to play a game who don't all sit around the, around the kitchen table to do the same thing. So in that case, is, is that screen time? I'm not sure. It may be, but it's time that we're all focusing on the same thing, talking to each other, laughing, engaging each other, 
And nobody wants people to feel bad about that type of time. But that is uh, not probably the majority of time that kids are are spending on screens, right? There, there was a study, right. a very small study that the New York Times reported on this week of, I think, like 350 families in Philadelphia that concluded both that a really high number of these parents' children had their own tablets, uh, iPods or tablets um, or phones, and that they use them unsupervised. So the these new AAP guidelines are really stressing, like Dan said, co-engagement, which is probably not how most people, especially most people with young children, think about the benefits of screen time. I mean, usually it's to, you know, occupy a child while you can take a shower or make dinner. And that is still sort of, right, not, not okay. Right. Well, you know, everything has a dose-related curve, right? Uh, there's a dose response to any input that you want to put into into the human organism. So is five minutes on the screen while you take a shower, you know, the damaging? I don't know. We haven't studied that. Is there a threshold? Uh, we chose two hours mainly at the time because the data on obesity and television viewing around that time limit were incredibly strong. And they remain incredibly strong. So uh, there have been recent studies that have reinforced the idea that kids who are watching television for greater than two hours a day have a significantly increased risk for obesity throughout their life. That's where the two hours came from. That's one of those things that hasn't gone anywhere. What does that mean for somebody who's, you know, playing with a phone for five or ten minutes? I don't know that anybody can really tell you that. Uh, but when you're looking at a setting where children are using passive screen entertainment for hours at a time in place of learning self-control, playing with blocks, reading books, dealing with a parent or another caregiver, I think it's fair to say that that is likely to have the same detrimental effects that we have known for a long time that it has. So jumping ahead in life a little bit to older kids and teenagers in particular, I was really struck by the part of the paper that explicitly stressed that it's okay for teens to be online. I think that a lot of parents of teens have a huge amount of anxiety about the online world and social media in general and freak out about that a lot. And so I was really heartened, I think, to see this paper specifically pointing out the social and developmental benefits of social media and the online world for teenagers. Do you see parents on a day-to-day -day basis who worry about this a lot? Oh, sure. And I am one of those parents. I have four teenagers in my house. And how they use social media and when they use social media is of great concern to me. These things are tools, right? And they are incredibly powerful tools. At the coolest, they are incredibly powerful for uh, allowing for social engagement, for kids to keep up with their friends. We have you know, whole groups of children with rare diseases or chronic diseases who are able to support each other, talk to each other, share tips online, help each other through tough times. That is an amazing use of social media that has an incredibly positive impact. On the flip side, you have groups of people, for example, with eating disorders who give each other tips on how to hide their disease from their parents or encourage each other to continue in activities that can be very life-threatening. Eating disorders, specifically anorexia, has the highest mortality of any mental illness in teens. So, you know, what are you doing 
with the media is the big question. So we want parents to feel comfortable if kids are online working on a homework project or, or keeping up with their friends. We want them, however, to also, you know, talk to their kids about what they're doing. And if they're using this for cyberbullying or they're being cyberbullied or they are sharing, you know, sexual material that they might get in deep trouble with their state law enforcement agency for, or they might get badly embarrassed by, uh, this is a conversation. You, you, we've handed these kids very powerful tools. Everybody knows they're not going away. So now we have the hard part, which is active parenting. That is sitting down with them next, next to them, just like you would with a, with a chainsaw and saying, you know, let's put on our, our eye protective gear and make sure we know how to use this thing. And, you know, we can use it to build houses or, or, or we can use it to be immensely destructive. Let's figure out what we're going to do with it. I feel like there's a bigger philosophical issue at play for me, though, that every household I know is basically in a constant state of war about kids wanting as much screen time as possible and parents wanting them to moderate it to any extent. And this debate is what is the, is what is driving me the most crazy about screens. It's not that I fear that my kids will eventually like that their growth will be impeded because of screens. I think that they'll, they will be fine in the end. It's not that I'm worried that they won't. Uh, be good at using computers. They'll definitely be good at using computers. But my worry mostly has to do with the constant, never-ending debate about how to moderate screen time and can I have more screen and time. And their obsessiveness about one. And their obsessive, right? yes. And that, that's, that seems to be the only thing they care about. And I mean, I see this from everyone. And so do you have any sense as a pediatrician and as a father of ways to moderate this, ways to stop kids from obsessing to the degree that they seem to be obsessing on this issue? You know, there you're coming back to a very basic parenting question, and it's something that we emphasized in our report on the symposium, is that the, the nuts and bolts of parenting do not change. The arguments change, what people are worried about changes, but the the, the basic process doesn't change. In the 1950s, we were having this fight over comic books, right? And in the 1970s, it was television, you know, cable came in, you could watch what you wanted to, you know, pretty much around the clock all of a sudden. Uh, so now we have these devices, but is this any different than a struggle over when bedtime is, when you're allowed to use the car, how much candy you can have on Halloween night. Uh, it's really not. It comes back to limit setting. And as your kids get older, uh, hopefully you're involving them more and more in decision-making processes. You know, how are these limits going to work? What do you think an appropriate consequence is if these limits aren't working. Uh, and you're sort of engaging the child as they get older. You know, when, when your children are young, don't do this or you'll be in timeout, which is really easy. And when you've got a 16-year-old or a 17-year-old, it becomes, let's talk about your goals and whether this is getting you toward your goals or farther away from your goals. You know, if you're up all night gaming and you're sleeping poorly and then you're bombing your test the next day, uh, it would seem that we have a problem, right? Uh, so you're sort of applying parenting to the child at an appropriate stage of development. But I think it's important to reinforce the idea that nothing about parenting or discipline 
changes because we have these devices in our lives. It's just the latest place where we have to sort of become parenting judo masters and, and figure out this game. And I don't know anybody who's perfect all right, listeners, we want to hear from you. Uh, how have you managed screen time in your house? What kind of judo master techniques are you using to help balance the amount of screens that your kids are using and to make sure that you're involved in their on-screen life in that environment? Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting and let us know. And thank you so much, Dr. Hill. You bet. Thanks a lot for having me on. All right, we'll link to the new AAP paper and to Dr. Hill's website on the show page and on Facebook. Okay, our second sponsor this week is Bull & Branch, the online luxury bedding company. Do your kids ever wake you up really early in the morning and you start your day by thinking, only 16 hours till I get to go back to bed? Me Every too. day. Yes. <laughs> Me too. And I think about like blocks of time, like get through this block of time and then get through this block of time. Anyway, sleep is sometimes all I think about. I tell my children all the time, just wait until you get older. You will love sleep. And sleeping on nice sheets makes me like sleep even more, which is where Bull & Branch comes in. Bull & Branch makes luxury bedding affordable and shopping for it easy. No more standing in the bedding department wondering if thread count really matters or how sheets will feel after they're washed. Just go to bullandbranch.com to order good-looking, quality, 100% organic cotton, very soft sheets. And I'm saying this from experience because they actually sent us some sheets for much less than department stores charge. Bull & Branch is so sure you're going to love their sheets that they give you 30 nights to try them out. If you don't love them for any reason, you can send them back for a full refund. Also, if you order sheets right now, they'll give you $50 off a set of sheets plus free shipping. Just go to bullandbranch.com and use the promo code MOMANDDAD. That's bull, B-O-L-L, and branch.com and use the promo code MOMANDDAD. Okay, Dan. All right. Before our listener call, we have a DVD giveaway to announce. Um, I've got a great movie to give away to listeners of Mom and Dad are Fighting. Uh, Allison, you may know from hearing me talk about it endlessly that I'm a big fan of Studio Ghibli, uh, Hayao Miyazaki's animation studio, Japanese animation studio responsible for masterpieces like Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro. And I have here in my hot little hands two DVD Blu-ray combo packs of their most recent film, the most recent Ghibli film, when Marnie was there. It is a beautiful and mysterious story of friendship between two young girls voiced in the English language version by Haley Steinfeld and Kiernan Shipka to enter for to win one of these DVD combo packs. Come to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. Find the contest post with the picture of the DVD and tell us a story in the comments of your best childhood friend. We will choose our two favorite stories and those listeners will win DVDs. Thanks to Universal and Studio Ghibli for the freebies. All right, let's move on to our listener call. Every episode, we answer a question from a listener. If you've got a question for us, give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE, or what our children are at the dinner table. Today's question is from Carrie in Massachusetts. Take it away. My question is about thank you note etiquette for kids who are too young to write their own following their birthday parties. Um, I want to definitely model gratitude for the presents that they get from their friends, um, and I can never seem to get my act together enough to actually write them. I have visions of um, writing the note myself and having my kid just even sign their name or put a mark on the page or something, and um, I just 
keep failing on doing this. And so I wonder, is this part of the birthday party contract where uh, it just should happen and, and families really expect a response? Or maybe we should all just let it go and know that the kid got the present, they hand-delivered it, they loved it, it was great, we can move on. Um, would love to hear your thoughts on this, and thank you so much again. Bye-bye. So I am definitely terrible at this, and I tell myself that it's okay because it's like a dying tradition. Um, <laughs> but, you know, now those on the online invitation companies like Paperless Post and Evite, they make it really easy because you can just send out like a blast. You can basically press a button and send out a blast impersonal thank you to each person saying like, thanks for coming to my party, loved your present. Uh, I don't know if you could actually fill in like loved your blank present uh, if you have a good parent who keeps track of who got you what as you're opening your presents. But yeah, I mean, I think it's great to teach your children gratitude and teach them the importance of saying thank you. I also think that... I don't know. <laughs> I, I think I have it's strong really, feelings really hard awesome. to get it done. Okay, yes. I have go. strong feelings. Here, here is the breakdown. Here's how it should work. When kids are really, really little, the parent should just send an email to the other parent saying, thanks for bringing your kid to the party. The present was really nice. Great job. That's it. That's all you have to do. When kids are a little bit bigger and they can write, a thank you note is really nice. But that can also be written by email by the kid. Make them do it. It's not that hard. Uh, handwritten is also fun. They can do that. But I will say to your benefit, Allison, and to your benefit, Carrie, I have never once noticed when someone did not send me a thank you note. Yeah, me neither. Uh, hopefully no one noticed on the many occasions when we failed to do so either. Uh, but it is a nice thing to do. And if you can pull it off, it's great. Thank you notes are mandatory for family members. They should be mandatory for family members because family members are the most likely to judge you if they do not get thank you notes. I think there's kind of a generational divide, though, don't you? Like family members, like maybe, yes, you need to send a thank you note to your aunt Marsha because otherwise your aunt Marsha is going to go to your mother and be like, did Allison ever get my gift? Because I never got a thank you note. And then you're screwed. But your like cousin who's 25 does not care. But your cousin who's 25 would love it way even more than eh, Aunt Martha. Who I don't think even... so. I think your cousin who's 25 would be relieved that you don't send it. So then she doesn't have to feel bad about not sending one when she does, you know. I disagree. Bad. I think cousins who are 25 would love a note from your kid. But here is the most important. Cousins lesson. who are 25. Write us. Email <laughs> yes, us. Let us know. But here's the most important thing I would like to convey to all of our listeners, which is a much larger and more important issue, which is. Don't do gifts at birthday parties. Birthday gifts at birthday parties suck. Don't do them. People always give you fucking craft kits and shit that you then just turn around and you give to someone else for their birthday. Our house is full of crap already. We don't need more crap. I am a huge fan. Did However, anyone ask for your opinion on this? Yes. Carrie called and said, Dan, please this. tell me your opinion. Here is what you should do instead of birthday presents. Do the book exchange. Everyone who comes to the party, including the birthday kid, picks out and wraps one age-appropriate book that they like. Every guest leaves with a different book than she came with. Everyone gets a book. Every parent you know will be so grateful that that's all they have to do, and then they won't care about the thank you notes that you wouldn't remember to send anyway. Boo, hiss. I disagree. 
Oh, why? Why? What is so great about the shitty birthday presents that people give your kid that then just clutter up your house? Because the kids really enjoy them. It's special for them to get to open those. It's very exciting for them. And like my kids definitely like try to think of gifts that they think their friends will actually like. And I enjoy that process for them as well. They can think of books that they think their friends would actually books. like. And they can enjoy the process of opening you one and your book books. instead of 10 bullshit crap things that they don't even like. All right. You're out of your lane, Coyce. Oh, man. All right. Thanks, Carrie, for your question. If you've got a question that you'd like me to answer, a totally different question instead of, call us at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. That's what you are if you bring my kid a birthday gift. This past Sunday, we let our kids stay up way too late to watch Game 5 of the World Series. Harry had been rooting hard for the Mets and really cared about the game, but we knew it could drag on until well past 11 or midnight, so eventually it was time for him to go to bed. As I was walking into the kitchen to do the dishes, I heard John say to Harry, I know you really want to stay up, but you know how you can still be a part of the game? Get in bed and think really good thoughts about the Mets. Think, let's go Mets. You can win this Mets. Keep pitching those strikes, Matt Harvey, and that will really help them win. As it turned out, Harry must not have been thinking good enough thoughts, and in the morning we had to tell him that his lack of passion had cost the Mets the World Series. Man, it is really fun. (laughs) to have tiny little sports fans in the house, but parenting through childhood sports heartbreak stinks. Here to discuss John's scarring of my children for life is Mike Pesca of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, and also The Gist. Hey, Mike. Hi, and Fox did highlight keys to the game. One, keep runners out of scoring position. Two, locate your strikes. Three, Harry has to think really good thoughts. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so guys, have your children also experienced crushing defeat, and how have you talked them through it? Oh, well, this is why I think sports are great. Sports and pets, because it gets us used to death. That's why they exist. It under it habituates them to loss. It makes it seem that they're not so bad. And as with your pets and with your team, if they're still in your thoughts, they'll live on forever. But the great thing, so I have a sports fanatic and a sports enthusiast as my uh, eight and six-year-old. And I do love the fact that the next day they could wake up and I could recount my story the way Ronald Reagan used to do the baseball games, 80% truth, 20% embellishment. I could tell them who was on base and then what happens. And so it's fun parent bonding. But yeah, the loss is a bad thing. But that's a good thing about sports. Loss in the sports context always leads to rebirth. So maybe it's not like death as we Westerners experience it. (laughs) Right? It's more like a Hindu death. Are your kids Mets fans? Have yeah. they been upset this week too? Uh, Milo was. He was a big Mets fan. In fact, he Jimmy Kimmel did a segment where uh, he, Milo was on it randomly. Did you see this? I did saw I it. It was hilarious. Yeah. Yes. And at one point they asked, this was uh, two weeks ago, and he was wearing a Mets shirt and talking about the Mets, and they asked him, who's the dumbest person in L.A.? The segment was New York versus L.A. through a kid's eyes. And he said, oh, it's uh, it's got to be the manager of the Dodgers. <laughs> Two days later, Don Mattingly is fired and Milo is taking credit left and right. Milo did think those yes, thoughts and yes. it worked. So, yeah, he can. Wait, so have you guys ever tried to encourage your kids to root for the team that you knew would win to help, like, to let them experience triumph? No. no. That's, that's totally not character. <laughs> oh, my God, Allison. And you got little Yankees fans on your hands and what are you going to do with them? Yeah. You really want to live with that in your house every day? Do your kids like the teams that you like? 
Um, like is, that, is it pretty much Emmett went his up? own way. He chose first the San Francisco Giants because they had Kung Fu Panda. Yeah. And now that Kung Fu Panda is on the Red Sox, he says he's a Red Sox fan. But since Kung Fu Panda was so unawesome this year, he really has tempered his fandom. Emmett likes to play sports. He doesn't get as – he's just not as cerebral about sports as uh, Milo is, my eight-year-old. And Milo really, really enjoys sports. But, you know, I try not to. I don't, I don't know. Maybe they feed off how their parent reacts to sports. And I don't get too depressed and I don't get too um, unable to be consoled. And so maybe that's how they think sports are to be experienced, that it's not that crushing a loss. It's disappointing, but you move on. I think it's a great lesson. But so here's the question, Mike. Do you have a childhood sports heartbreak that you can point to as saying, oh, yeah, this was in the end, though I was, you know, completely bereft. This was a character building moment. And that's how I know. Well, I don't think it builds character, but. So New York, if you think of the New York sports fan, you someone listening to this who cares about such things might say, oh, yeah, so you've had Yankee victories and you have Giants victories. And yet there is a particular brand of sports fandom that is was my brand. A lot of kids on Long Island, you like the Mets, you like the Jets, you like the Knicks. And in my case, I like St. John's basketball because that's where my dad went. Well, in my lifetime, 1986, the Mets won the World Series and that's it. So I've had one world championship of all my teams. Has that built character? I don't know. You mix it up with the fact that I was a sports reporter for, you know, eight years, maybe even more than that. I I can't tell you what's built character, but I can tell you that I would so love another victory. But I don't get that down in defeat. I say I've perfected sports fandom. I cheer the victories and don't really get that down in defeat. And somehow that's able, I'm able to uh, translate that to my kids. Uh, The other thing I'd point to as being useful about losing, um, about your team losing when you're a kid, is that it is, it's a real community builder with your friends and with people that you know uh, and with people like in your world. So in 1982, when I was a kid, the Brewers made their only World Series uh, and they lost to the hated Cardinals. And that was like a signal defeat for me as a kid. I still remember how totally horrible I felt, but I also remember that the entire like pennant race and run and then the entire aftermath were both the moments at which I felt like I had the most in common with other kids that I went to school with. Um, and I like built friendships out of that that lasted for many years with kids who I maybe otherwise would not have been friends with because they were not nerds like me. Um, and I think that that's useful too. Like right now, Harry is probably going to school with a bunch of people who were also cheering for the Mets and who right now are just as bereft as he is. And that's something that they can share and get together with and get excited about next season as well. Maybe this is why, maybe you've just lit upon why New Yorkers have this uh, reputation for being a little hardened. And it's because we don't have the ability to have that one sports loss that bonds the whole community. Because for every Mets fan, there are probably more Yankees fans. So you have to deal with the taunts of those in your class as opposed to the consoling hugs. Mets and Yankees, Jets and Giants, now Nets and Knicks. There's Rangers and Islanders. There's always at least half the class at your throats willing to mock you i think it hardens the skin and the soul (laughs) yeah no i agree i mean especially i mean if you're the fan of the right new york sports team you can enjoy championships like basically every other year right and if you're the fan of the wrong new york sports team you (laughs) might never enjoy a championship and so the message i would give to harry allison is cast a wide net like like them all love as many new york sports teams as you can 
because you're you're going to get a championship because New York sports teams in general are rich and powerful. No, you will I don't definitely like get that a championship lesson at all. I don't like that lesson at all. Sam, our four year old, is the contrarian of the family, and he will he just roots against whoever we're all rooting for. <laughs> So he's way into the Yankees. He goes around saying, go Patriots, go Patriots. I love Tom Brady. Oh, uh, God. Yeah. So he he's not going to have much bonding. I know. He's a total troll. Uh, okay. Do you guys talk to your kids about the dark side of sports? Like, do you talk about whatever brain trauma when your kids are rooting for? No. Pesca's my my, looking at me like I'm crazy, but I, no, that's it's a, good, a real I'm, thing. I have because my kids want to know why I don't watch football anymore because I gave up football. Uh, and so I talked to them about why I did about the various noxious and things about football that seemed to me even more noxious than the noxious things about other sports, uh, and how I gave it up. And they, you know, they're not huge sports fans anyway, but they are somewhat into it and they definitely know that football is a big deal in the place where we live. Um, and so they have had time, have, they've been interested in that and have processed it in ways that I hope are useful to them. Do you know, do they know why the place you work will not say the name of the Washington sports football team? Uh, I have told them, yes, that I, that I, I didn't mention in the context of work, but I told them why I don't like to say that name. And I, for similar reasons, have told them why I've given up NASCAR because of their use of restrictor plates. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, Just let them drive, NASCAR. Right. <laughs> no, actually, now that you mention it, I say that that Washington name, we could say it, but, you know, it's not a very nice name. And so that leads to a conversation about nice things and calling people what they want to be called. Absolutely did lead to a conversation. And I told them when they get old enough, they can play football. But, you know, here's the problem. A lot of people get concussions and we talked about what concussions are absolutely sports are this great almost hermetically sealed prism to give little life lessons that are contained the one thing i worry about is there are so many things about the sports the athletes that you want them to emulate if they're playing that sport you got to draw the line as we all know but it's sometimes hard not to uh you know idolize the athlete for things beyond the fact that he could turn the double play so well it's a trap that is really easy to fall into. Yeah, I mean, have you explained to Sam that Tom Brady is actually horrible? Uh, I mean, he knows this. We've talked about it. Harry knows, but he doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes, we have. We don't have He's any illusions in our house. Yeah. All right, this has been great. I think, on balance, it's it, sports fandom is good for kids. Sure, if they're yeah. going to be Americans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, thanks, Mike. You're welcome. All right, let's pause for a word from our third sponsor, The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Let's move on to recommendations. Allison, what do you got? 
Okay, I'm going to recommend this new book called What is Punk by Eric Morse, who I don't know, but he lives in my new town. And I met him briefly at a reading of this book at Sam's Preschool. Uh, The book is a really great abbreviated but pretty spot on rhyming history of punk for kids. I'd say probably kids around ages three to six or seven. Uh, Annie Yee did these very cool 3D clay illustrations. Uh, there's little clay Johnny Rotten and clay Iggy Pop and clay Henry Rollins and clay CBGBs and a lot of great clay fashion and album covers. The book describes punk as the deafening roar that inspired the people like never before and is super fun. Uh, so that check it out. You get to see sex adorable. pistols when reading to your children. <laughs> That's so adorable. <laughs> Do your kids like like the idea of music that is meant to rebel against all other? Music? Very much so, and they really yeah. like like they, they like punk rock. So this yeah. after the reading, actually, Sam went up and asked the author like why the replacements weren't in the book, and they had a yeah, yeah. had a conversation about whether the replacements really was punk rock. Uh, that's a great recommendation. My recommendation also involves music, although it is an actual album. It also is, or at least in one version of it, is a little bit pricey, but uh, I'm justifying that by thinking that it would make a really great holiday gift for a smaller child who really loves music. Um, it is called This Record Belongs To. It is an album of really good, fun, classic songs that appeal to children, not necessarily children's songs exclusively. Uh, it's got tracks by Nina Simone, Van Dyke Parks, Harry Nielsen, Woody Guthrie, Kermit the Frog, and of course the Pointer Sisters and Take It Away. The uh, album is from Third Man Records, which is Jack White's record label in Nashville. You can buy it as a CD. You can get it on vinyl. But the recommendation, the specific recommendation I'm making, which I think is really fun, is for this crazy, awesome deluxe set they sell that includes the record and a great yellow record player for kids, like a kid-friendly, self-contained yellow record player. Um, Harper... Has it has one. She has it in her room. She is not only playing the songs on this album and really loving them, she is stealing my records and playing them in her room too, which I, of course, love. Um, we'll have links to buy these recommendations, uh, and including this whole deluxe set on our show page. So check them out. It's really good. That sounds great. All right. That is our show. Please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting, where we will post links to everything we discuss. Plus, we chat with listeners in between episodes. Plus, enter our contest there for your copy of When Marnie Was There. You can also drop us an email at momanddad at slate.com with suggestions and ideas for future topics. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, and to our intern, Jesse Chase and Tabor. Farewell, Jesse. Thank you for all your help. Thanks to Andy Bowers, the chief content officer for Panoply. Mom and Dad are fighting as part of the Panoply Network. To see the rest of our lineup of podcasts, visit iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks to our guests, Dr. David Hill and Mike Pesca. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening. Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast brings you the latest updates from the campaign trail. The Oscar campaign, that is. Will the voters choose the establishment favorite? It's Spielberg and it's Disney. You know, it goes down easy enough. An upstart outsider with a compelling story. There's a chance you show it and the audience just goes, I do not accept Jason Siegel as David Foster Wallace. Or has the eventual winner not even entered the race yet? And we were all sitting here this year waiting on these three December movies that yeah. no one has seen. Subscribe to Little Gold Men from Vanity Fair and Panoply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. 
Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.